Well, we're closing our inspired songbooks this morning for a return trip to the land of wisdom over the next uh, few weeks. Uh, beginning in February, we'll start a new exposition, which is going to be the book of Daniel, arguably the prophetic key to the whole Bible. I know a number of you lobbied for certain books. Uh, I think <laughs> Romans was the at the top of the list, and I myself love the gospel, so I was drawn to the gospel of John, but I like to rotate back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We just came out of Philippians, and so we're going to be in Daniel. Um, if you prayed for Romans, that may be on the horizon at some point, just, just not right now. And I think that you're going to find the book of Daniel uh, as helpful and as timely as, as Philippians. But, but over the next three weeks, we're going to go see Dr. Solomon... And we're going to get a theology booster uh, about living life outside of the, uh, of the garden. With all that is going on in our world, uh, I, want to, I want to check the, the biblical rope around your, around your waist. I want to cinch it up, make sure that you don't sink. And just to be clear, I, I, I don't have any desire to give you some type of theological platitudes that says, oh, well, God is sovereign, so don't worry about anything. This world is evil, and all that around us is, is evil, and that's true, but, but you, you must be tethered to, to the boat whenever you're swimming in, in those kinds of waters. So you have to think right before you, you respond and before you, you do right, and it's possible that that all the noise that goes on around us in a, in a fallen world begins to, to drown out the, the voice that we need to hear, who's just the voice of God. And then after we do that, I'm going to put some, some tools, the right tools in your hands to, uh, to, you know, to, to work. So we're going for a second dose of wisdom for navigating a, a fallen world. And frankly, there's no better book to help us think rightly in a world that's all wrong than than Ecclesiastes. And um, during our, our brief return to the land of the curse, we're going to be looking at three key passages in the book that will help you as believers navigate um, current and coming circumstances. There are going to be three messages. At the end, I may do a, I may do a Q&A answer to give you time for any specific questions. We'll see how that, how that goes. I mean, how should we think about what we see or what we don't see with the election? I mean, what if there was massive fraud and people are getting away with it? What do you do about the corrupted media? media? What, what, if, what if Christians are persecuted or, or to an even greater degree? I mean, how do I respond or how should I respond to a government that's increasingly wicked if they try to force me to do something that, that I don't think I should do? What if they start using tax dollars for abortions? What if they mandate vaccines that, that are made out of a cell line from, from an abortion? Should I take it? What, what should I do then? Does God have anything to say about any of those types of, of things? Well, well, indeed He does. And it may not come in a, the prepackaged microwave version like you would, you would like or I would like. You, you may have to work for it to, to mine the principles out and, and apply it, and I'll try to help you do that. But, but God has not left His people without, without direction. And with all of that swirling, um, and then some, 
The book of Ecclesiastes sets our minds right. There is a God and He is sovereign. I mean really sovereign, according to Ecclesiastes 3. There is a world and it is fallen. I mean crooked beyond straightening. It will never be straight until Jesus comes. Political evil is part of that and vexing, according to Ecclesiastes 5. And there are tools, and we must use them as we live in a fallen world under the rule of a, of a sovereign God at times when evil people reign. And like the whole book, you, all three of these messages go together. So if you listen to one and not the other, then, then you're going to get an incomplete picture. But we start today... Where, where everything starts, uh, with God. Right thinking is required before right, right doing. So I want you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3. Chapter 3 begins a new section in this masterful book about wise living in a fallen world. And Solomon starts the book with a realistic view of, of life. We want to, desire to tie righteous knots, and that should be our aim and our goal. But what we find, Solomon says, is no matter how tight we tie a righteous knot, in a fallen world, it comes undone. He ends the book with where to find hope. Mingled throughout are several keys of wisdom for to a true enjoyment in a Genesis 3 world. Life here and now is under the curse of sin. Things are crooked. That cannot be made straight. The way things are is not the way they're supposed to be. You feel that, and I feel that, and you should feel that, because they're not supposed to be this way. But when you look at this world for meaning, or look to this world for meaning, or, or the end, uh, all you're going to find is an empty cupboard. Its best days are frustrating, its greatest feats seem futile, the brightest minds end up in the same ground with the ignorant ones. And Solomon has proven this to us by laying out a very methodical plan in chapter 1, and then he, he details, he gives a detailed record of his pursuits in chapter 2. And if you want to go back and listen to both of those, those messages, they're, they're excellent. Solomon explored both work and wisdom, doing and, and thinking, and, and it's, he searched for meaning and pleasure and prosperity and personal success and philosophy and knowledge. He looked high and low, and no matter where he looked, he found only the curse. It was always operative. And he ended his search with, with this conclusion in chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing good in a man to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen is from the hand of God. And with that verse, Solomon explains why mankind cannot find satisfaction in this world. He, and he gives us a, a glimpse of hope, the first glimpse of hope, I think, in the book. As part of the curse, remember, the curse came in Genesis 3 because of our sin, but God's the one that inflicted the curse upon the world and upon mankind as a response to their sin. And as part of the curse, God has removed our ability to find complete satisfaction without Him part of the curse. That's why you search and, and search and don't find what you're looking for, and, and, and it ends without, without peace. Maybe you're searching this morning, and God wants you to finally give you the answer. When we are without God, we find no satisfaction because we can't. 
When we come to the end of our ceaseless search through Jesus Christ, we find complete satisfaction in Him. And once we do, then God restores our ability to find pleasure even in the gifts that He's once given. So, so outside of Christ, search and search, you find nothing in Christ's satisfaction. And then, and then after that, even in the world, He gives us good gifts to enjoy. You've been given wisdom and knowledge and, and, and joy. And it won't be like what it awaits us in heaven, but we'll still have a measure of frustration uh, from the curse, sometimes heavy doses. But it won't be like when we were unbelievers and we couldn't find any rest for our souls. Today, Solomon is, is going to help us by giving us the most important tool there is to operate in a cursed and crooked world, and that's God's sovereignty. Warren Wiersbe said you can outline chapters 3 through 5 with, with four looks. A look up, a look within, a look beyond, and, and a look around. And after we, we take this look, we'll, we'll gain some tools. So after completing his desperate search, Solomon points out to us the one place that we can find stability outside of the garden is, is God. Solomon says God is absolutely and totally sovereign over all things, over all people, all time, events, and most importantly, for his topic in Ecclesiastes, think about the context for chapter 3 here. He's sovereign even over the curse. All sin, all death, and evil, and all corruption. There is not an atom in the universe that is not operating under Christ's supremacy. Gerard von Rad, I was reading in preparation for, for Daniel, said, God summons world empires as a man whistles for an animal. I love that image. You see, Solomon understands if you're going to live in a world where things are unalterably crooked with all the effects of the curse, one of the greatest tools we can have to live is an understanding of God's grip. It will allow you to, to trust in all the areas we see this, the curse so clearly, like twisted elections. It is the steadying doctrine for believers living in a fallen world. And, and if you fail to grasp it or misunderstand it, you're going to get off track very quickly. You, you may have the right diagnosis. Things are evil. Things are wrong, and they are. But you're going you're to apply the wrong treatment plan. While living under the curse, if you have a wrong view of God's sovereignty, you will experience even greater frustration in life. You'll, you'll be frustrated by the evil, but you'll be frustrated by why doesn't God do something about it? Why don't believers do something? Why doesn't somebody do something about it? And you'll spend your, your life asking why questions when you should be asking how questions. I mean, that's the question we ask, isn't it? Why as human beings, we're born asking why. God tells us He created the world, and we say, why? I mean, He allowed the fall, and we say, why? And then there's the more troubling why questions, like, why is this happening right now? Why did evil win? Why, why did I get sick? Why did she die? Why is there so little satisfaction? And Solomon writes the first 15 verses of chapter 3 to replace your interrogative. He, he wants to teach you to stop asking uh, God, why this is happening, and start asking God, how can I submit to you in this matter? How can I trust you? How can I obey you? How can I worship you in life under the sun? And the lesson that helps you do that is a good understanding of God's grip on everything. Now, now let me dispel something quickly to keep you from 
from stumbling. Because I know how your mind works just like mine. Affirming God's sovereignty over all things doesn't mean all the individual events are good. I mean, in this list are things from the curse. They're not good. Or that God even likes the events. Or that He can be blamed for them. None of that means uh, you're affirming God's sovereignty. Or in affirming God's sovereignty that those things are, are the case. It means that God is greater than us and He's working a grander plan which will call all those, uh, cause all those events, good and bad, to bring about His righteous end. I mean, the, the ultimate example of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. There was no greater evil perpetrated than, the, than the, the murder of God's Son. And yet, the Bible says, He predetermined it and planned every single aspect of it. And sometimes... God's plan involves the defeat of his people and allowing men to sin. I wonder how Joseph felt about what God was allowing when he was sold into slavery and then, and then lied about and placed in prison. I wonder if he felt different after his brothers came before him and when, when the whole family was all living in Egypt and preserved from, from the famine. I mean, if he was drawing conclusions based on what he experienced in a specific point in time, like, say, in the middle of the, of, of the, of the cistern, he could have easily misjudged depending upon when he drew his assumption. I wonder the same thing about Job. Sometimes God's plan involves and means giving lost people what they want, even though God's people are living in the midst of them and want something different. I wonder what a faithful Israelite felt like uh, when, when the unfaithfulness of the other Israelites led to the Babylonians overtaking Jerusalem. I wonder if their descendants felt any different when Ezra brought out the book and the people repented and the law was, was, was read again. You see, bedrock beliefs, not partial perspectives, must govern us in a, in a fallen world. Faith in God that does not change will keep you from despair when everything else around you cries out for it. Solomon knows the best answer to any why question we have is God's good grip and shows us how we can trust Him. Besides, even if you, you knew the answer to why, it wouldn't help you rest because you'd be too limited to understand it and you couldn't change it anyway. The good news is you're not too limited to trust the Lord and to rest in His hand, regardless of the why. So so Solomon helps us in the first 15 verses here. And he says there are six things that you and I need to understand about God's good grip that as you live in a Genesis 3 world, or six beliefs about God's grip that will help you navigate life outside of the garden. He says... God's grip is noticeably absolute in verses 1 through 8, this poem that you probably have all read. Then it's eternally complete in his follow-up question in verses 9 and 10, and then it's purposely, purposefully, inexplicable. Verse 11, it's delightfully good, it's a gift. 12 and 13, it's worshipfully durable in verse 14, and then it's unquestionably immutable or unchangeable. In verse 15, let's, let's look at the first one here and we'll walk through these. I think it'll be very helpful for you. God's grip is noticeably absolute. 
If you come to Jesus Christ, the quest for, for meaning has ended in Him, but, but the wisdom that you need to live wisely in a sin-cursed world begins with grasping God's unqualified control on this world. Look, if you would, at verse 1. Look how he starts. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Solomon begins by saying God's sovereignty is absolute. This begins the, likely the most well-known poem in all of Ecclesiastes. Some of you probably have it hanging on your wall like, like I do. It contains my wife's favorite verse. Solomon wants you to write it on the dashboard of your life to remind you as you're driving through the, the, the land of, of the curse. And now the statements that he makes in, in, in verses 2 and on... Um, They're pronouncements. They're they're not prescriptions. I mean, Solomon is not saying this is what you do in life. He's saying this is what life looks like. um, He's he's not prescribing, he's describing life under the the sun. I I mean, God surely is not commanding birth or death. He's saying birth and death both take place. He's not saying, see to it as you live that war breaks out in this list. He's not teaching us what people ought to do. He's describing situations that you will face as a believer in the fallen world and declaring that God has every one of them in his grip. Solomon says there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven. And then he gives this list. I mean, the first part of the verse makes, makes it clear Solomon includes everything under, sun, under the sun. And the second statement expands on it. There's an appointed time for everything, no exceptions. And more specifically, every activity under heaven. That's the way that you you would read verse 1. And God's the one who appoints them. It even starts with activities that human beings have no control over. If you would at verse 2. A time to give birth and a, a time to die. Now, you may have some control over what you do to bring about a birth or how well you live, but you don't know the specific moment or, or time that birth is going to come or that death is going to come, but God does. He's appointed it. And the verse couldn't be complainer about God's absolute control, but the context helps us. Why is God talking about His sovereignty there? How do I, how do I apply this? Well, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, and so it's written for us to gain skill to to, to navigate, to be wise, to be skillful in living. But this book is not only wisdom literature, it's specifically to grant us wisdom living under the curse. And so whatever Solomon wants us to learn here about God's sovereignty, it's so we can become wise or skilled in living in a fallen world. And he says the wisdom that you need to live, or, to live under the curse is God's absolutely sovereign. He's in complete control of, of everything. And if you don't understand that, even if you can't comprehend it, you'll, you'll, you'll constantly be thrown off by calamity and the effects of the, uh, of the curse. Rather than focusing on that on, on your dashboard, you're going to be thinking about the pothole that the car just, just, just hit. If you, think about, if you think the things that come under the sun are just random acts or something that God's not controlling, you're either going to go insane or find some unstable rationalization that will eventually unravel. And while the Bible is clear that God cannot be blamed for sin, it's also very clear that there are no gaps 
in his sovereignty. Otherwise, evil and sin are sovereign. And Solomon says if God is not in control, something else is. And that's, that's a more terrifying thought than grappling with how to reconcile man's sin and God's control. I mean, someone or something rules. Either that's a good God who sometimes allows things that we can't understand, or it's free will or sin or evil that can do things that God can't stop. And that's a terrifying thought, not to mention unbiblical. I mean, if you think you're getting God off the hook by, by saying He's limiting His sovereignty to keep Him from seeing, uh, seeming responsible for evil, that doesn't help Him at all. I mean, first of all, He doesn't need our help, but it actually makes it worse. If you think human freedom is more understandable than God being sovereign, it's, it's not. Because it still means God could have intervened and He didn't. Or, or worse, He wasn't able to, as some believe. And now you've not only made a God who's good, but He's impotent. I mean, think about it. Have you ever asked the question, I mean, if God knew what mankind would do, uh, was going to do before He created them, before the fall, He knew they were going to fall, why didn't He stop them? I asked that question. I mean, why did God put uh, the tree in the Garden of Eden if He knew what Adam and Eve were going to do? He's omniscient, He knows everything, He's all-powerful. You say, what will let man have a choice? And surely man had a choice. That doesn't fix anything related to God seems to explain one thing in our mind, man's freedom, but it creates another question. Why did a loving God do that in the first place? And why didn't He intervene if He's omniscient and He's good? And then you'll play that game until you rest in what the Bible says, regardless of whether you can understand it. Solomon says, I have a much wiser plan. It is to trust that God's grip is absolute. And then he says, let me demonstrate. So he lists 14 pairs of events that fall under his control, beginning in verse 2. He goes through verse 8. And he says, Solomon says he appoints all these things. And notice there the extremes, meaning it covers both ends and everything in between. Birth and death in verse, verse 2. Planting and plucking, that's not just the, the harvest, but what you do with the, with the vine whenever it dries up. You, you pluck it out of the ground, the extremes. From the seed to after it's totally gone, it's already harvested. Kill and heal, tear down and build up, weep and laugh, mourn and dance. It's as long as you don't wiggle whenever you do it, right? Throw and gather, embrace and refrain, gaining and losing, rending and mending, silent and speaking, love and hate, war and peace. Verse 8. Solomon's point is if God controls the extremes, He also controls less than that. Now notice that some of these events are a result of the fall. I mean, death and killing and mourning and weeping and war there, they weren't part of God's plan before sin. They were part of the garden, but Solomon says even now, God's grip envelops them all. He's not responsible for sin, but He controls it. He's not the author of evil, but He ordains it. You see, calamity and difficulties are going to come in a fallen world. Isn't it comforting to know that God's sovereign over them, even if you don't understand? Let me illustrate how that helps you in a cursed world. Uh, What did Job trust in whenever the curse came knocking at his door? It literally blew his house down. Look at Job chapter 1. Look at where Job turns whenever the curse comes knocking on his door. 
Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, who did all those things to Job? The devil, right? But he doesn't even address the devil. Listen to what he says to God. He says, you're sovereign. You have the right to give and you have the right to take away. What was yours to begin with? And then he says, you're good. Blessed be your name. So I will not sin with unbelief or blame you. That's where he plants his flag whenever the, the fire falls. And that's where you rest whenever you face the curse. God's grip of time means no matter what you face, birth or death, war or peace, planting or harvesting, no matter what calamity comes, as a result of the fall or evil, God is still in control of it, and the judge of the earth always does right. Isn't that comforting? And you say, yes, it is. But but I have one of those why questions creeping into my mind. I mean, if God is in control, then then why do anything myself? I mean, if, if it's absolute, then why vote? Why pray? Why obey? I mean, if God's just going to do what He's going to do, doesn't that make everyone a puppet? Well, once again, Solomon anticipates our thoughts. Look, if you would, at verse 9. What profit is there for the worker... From that in which he toils. I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Solomon asked the question well, if this is true that God appoints a time for everything, then why work? What's the profit? What's the point? Haven't you asked that question? You thought that question? I have. I have kept watch on the task that God has assigned. Uh, emphasis, God assigned. And, and Solomon says that, that he studied the whole life of man. And, and so he says, what's the gain? I mean, if it's all predetermined, then, then what profit is there? And then he gives the answer. And it's not, it's not fatalism. The second belief about God's grip that he gives is that it's it's complete, eternally complete. We view it at verse 11. So he asks the question in verse 9, and gives the observation in verse 10, and then he answers it in verse 11. He, that's God, has made everything appropriate or literally beautiful in its time. And he has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Verse 11 says that He has made everything beautiful in its time. My friend Joel James says Solomon sees right through the errors of fatalism and what he saw was beauty. But that beauty takes time to develop. God's time. And that's what he says that you need to see as well. The the common answer, uh, the answer to the common question, if God is sovereign, then what's the use, is God will make everything beautiful in time. You work and obey because you're only seeing part of the picture. 
mean, this is the this verse, verse eleven, is Romans eight twenty eight of the of the Old Testament. You know Romans eight well. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. There's the fall, the weakness from the fall. For we do not know, there's our ignorance, we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So prayer according to the will of God, which we can't always see. can't always see what's going on. So the Spirit aids us because we're limited. And then providence by the will of God. And we know, even though we can't see, that God causes all things to work together to, for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. I know that is a, an abused verse, but it's a verse in the Bible. God will make all things beautiful in His time. That's, that's what Paul is saying. That's what Solomon is saying. So what does Paul say at the end? So what should we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He says, Paul saw God's sovereignty as a comfort in the curse, not something that leads you to curl up in a fetal position or grow mushrooms on your will. God's grip is complete. You work eternally complete. You work, He overworks. You work in time, He overworks in His time. You make things, He makes all things beautiful. Are you listening? Solomon reminds us God's sovereignty cannot be looked at in the moment and only here. It must be viewed from eternity, and you cannot see that far. And if you try to evaluate things by looking only from your point of view, you will conclude it's futile, it's fatalistic, because you see an incomplete picture. You don't have the same vantage point that God does, so stop evaluating what He's doing or being tempted to think you know better. We're like a toddler that, that can't see the top of the table trying to tell mom how to set it or whether it looks good. We're like the, the guy in the Thanksgiving parade somewhere in the tuba section of the marching band trying to tell the announcers that high up, they're high up overlooking the whole parade, which float's coming next. And God knows it all, He sees it all, He controls it all, and He'll make it beautiful when He's done with it, and it's in His time. I mean, you look at a blind child and, don't, and you don't think that that looks beautiful. God sees that child in John 9 with his clock and he sees the beauty of Christ coming along and declaring his deity by healing that child. That's how far God can see. God's clock runs with eternal hands. And his plans need no corrections or amendments. It doesn't mean things aren't evil doesn't mean you don't fight against them. But it's the rope as you're swimming in these waters. Don't judge what God is doing with feeble eyes and a weak mind. He's far beyond your ability. And who are we to question the Almighty? Besides, you don't want to be in control. You don't want, to, you don't want the freedom to walk outside of, of God's sovereignty. Only God has the wisdom to take the pieces and weave them together into a masterpiece. And only God has the goodness to make a beautiful picture, even with, with the curse. And you say, okay, I agree. But I still have some questions. So do I. 
And so did Solomon. And he explains to you next why. The third thing that he teaches us here about God's grip is it's purposefully, purposefully inexplicable. So there's a God-appointed time in verses 1 through 8. There's God-completing or beautifying time. There's a God-completing or beautifying time in verses 9 through, through 11. And the questions that, that come up in between are part of God's plan as well. Look at the end of verse 11. So he answers the question from 9 and 10 at the first part of verse 11. He has made everything appropriate, beautiful in his time or in its time. And Here's the second part. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Now you say, okay, God is sovereign. And while I can't see what he will do eventually... I sure could handle it a little easier if he told me what he was doing, right? Have you ever thought that? Um, I mean, God is God, and I know he allowed it, but I would do much better with it if I knew why he allowed it. I mean, I knew why I I got this sickness or whatever took place. Well, it's because I'm going to go to the hospital, and when I'm sick in the hospital, I'm going to witness to that person, and they're going to come to Christ. And so then that gives me the ability to, to trust to go to the hospital. Well, Solomon says, trust that whenever you go to the hospital, that God's in the midst of that, regardless of whether you see the person come to Christ or not. Not in the results, but in the God who brings about the results. First, Solomon knows this again, because we're all the same. That's exactly what he's addressing in verse 11. He first tells us why we feel that way, why we want to know. He says it's because God put eternity in our hearts. Solomon says, God set eternity in your heart, and that's why you're asking why. You were created to live forever, but now you're relegated to the limitations that the curse brings. And if you're a believer now, you have the mind of Christ, and and you have the light of God in you, and so you you can see sin and evil even better, and, and you long for all of that to be eradicated from this world. But... That won't be eradicated until the kingdom comes. You see the tension that's there. You still have the question. You still want to see beyond this life and how it will end, but but you don't get the answer now because there's a curse. Here's the second key that that Solomon gives to to wisdom of why there's so much frustration in a a fallen world. The first one he already gave us... uh, At the fall, part of the curse, God removed your ability to be completely satisfied in anything in the world. That's what he says at the end of of chapter 2. There's nothing good in a man to enjoy his food and labor. and, And then look at the rest of the verse. And tell himself that his labor is good. He's removed our capacity to find lasting satisfaction here. And here's the second one, in the verse 11. Solomon adds, we were created to be permanent in a world that's passing away, and that frustrates us. And like before, God's the one that, that's behind it in, in verse 11. Yet so man will not find out the work which God has done. You can't find it out. So Solomon tells us as part of the fall... We can't be satisfied in anything other than God, and even when we come to God, we, 
We still long for these questions to be answered. And that's part of God's plan. God has placed in us the desire to see things complete, to know the plan. But because of the curse, we don't and we can't. So Solomon says we must rest in the fact that God does. You see, the fall is much worse than we think. I mean, it brought the opposite of what Satan promised. What did Satan promise Eve? What did he tempt Eve with? What did he promise her? Eat this and you will know. So much more than you know now. And what was the actual result? We know so much less because Satan's a liar. You want to know what God is doing, and that desire goes through the roof when hardship comes and things are inexplicable and evil reigns. It just, the meter goes off the charts. So why did God do that? Well, he limited our satisfaction in the world, so, so that would drive us to Christ. You can't find it anywhere other than Jesus, and so you're walking around with this, this desire that's unfulfilled, and, and so someone tells you about, about the Lord. But why has, he, why has he limited us in, in this way? It's so that you trust him. The grace is the things that we can't explain lead us to trust God, and, and that's why he does it. He also does it so we don't carry a burden that's too heavy for us to carry. I mean, what good is knowing if you can't do anything about it? It's just a heavy burden to carry. And even if you could do something about it, you'd mess it up. I mean, you can't remember your anniversary and you lock your keys in your car. You think you can run the universe? I mean, if you could pick knowing or not knowing, the why questions, which would be better? Well, God says knowing enough to obey Him, but not knowing so much that that you'd fail to trust Him is best. Knowledge can be a burden. You might think of it this way. I mean, if you knew a few years from now your wife would be diagnosed with cancer on November 3rd, 2025, what would life be like? You know that today. Could you carry that burden? Your child is going to fall from the swing and break their leg. Would you let them on swings? You don't know when. You see, it's either crushing or paralyzing, and they both keep you from living. Now multiply that with every hardship and difficulty you'll ever face in the cursed world and carry that. God's sovereignty is grace. He can carry that. He does. And He also has the power to work all things together and make it beautiful in His time. And so you you can trust Him. And trusting Him is better than knowing and being in control yourself. And His gifts are good. Which is the fourth thing that Solomon teaches us here. God's grip is delightfully good. Go to verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Verse 13. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God, or it's God's gift to man. Solomon says, understanding and believing in God's grip allows a believer to do something that an unbeliever can never do. It allows you to rest. Even when you're swimming in waters that you know are filled with piranhas and sharks. And it gives you the ability to enjoy the gifts that he's given you. Even in that kind of world. 
Here's one of those places where the, the English words better than has been assumed and then inserted in your English translation. That's not in the Hebrew. The King James gets it right in this, in this verse. I perceive that there is nothing in them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Because of the fall, we cannot enjoy life as we ought. But look at the rest of the verse that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. It says God gives it to those who know him. No satisfaction without him. Completely satisfied in your soul with him. And then the ability to enjoy some of those gifts, even when there is evil reigning. And think about it. Solomon has been holding a life a light on life under the curse. He says it's futile, it feels like breath, it, it's frustrating, it's meaningless without God. You work and someone else gets your stuff whenever you die. You gain wisdom and then you die. And if you focus on all those things that, that come in this life, you'll find no enjoyment at all. That's what Solomon's been proving. And you know he's right because you've tried to do that like me. Now he says, however, if you have a God whose grip is absolute and appoints every event that takes place under heaven, who promises to make all things beautiful by weaving them together, and all his work is eternally complete, it can't be added to, then you can trust him, can't you? And in that trust you find rest, and in that rest you find the ability to enjoy the gifts. It doesn't mean that you stop lamenting over the curse, stop fighting it, but it does give you the ability to enjoy God and His gifts in the midst of it. God's sovereignty is not to paralyze you with fatalism. It's the exact opposite. It frees you to live. It releases you from worry from your heart and says that you might know how, but I know that God does, and so I will obey Him, and I'll leave the results to Him. And if your idea of God's sovereignty leads you to do nothing, then you've got a wrong view of God's sovereignty. It's His gift to His children in a cursed and crooked world So don't get hung up around the axle of trying to reconcile freedom and miss the greatest gift that that God offers you and the one that you need. Not only that, though, he goes further and says that it actually should lead you to worship him. Verse 14. God's grip of time is worshipfully durable. Verse 14. Here's the durability. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. There's the worship. God's grip of time is worshipfully durable. And so Solomon says that you can't add anything to God's plan anyway and you can't take away Now, if that's not a statement that declares God's sovereignty, I don't know what is. And Solomon says we should receive the, we should rejoice in this grip of God. Whatever he does lasts forever. And that should lead you to worship him. You want God to be sovereign because everything he does lasts. It's it's complete. It's it's perfect. That's why nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. Proverbs 19.21, man's plans... Many plans are in the man's, uh, in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And when we realize that, it, it should lead you to worship or fear Him. 
You don't stand before a God whose work endures forever. You bow before that kind of God. You don't cooperate with a God who's seated above the heavens and needs nothing from you. You fear Him in joyful adoration. The God of the Bible, this God, is both dangerous and approachable. He's both terrifying and inviting. And Solomon says trusting in God's sovereignty, when it's rightly understood, leads you to worship. And it causes you to tremble. It puts fear in your heart for the one who is so great that he needs nothing from me. It puts praise on my lips for the one who saved even me. And it allows me to declare what he has said right and wrong, whether people hear it or not. And it moves us to tell others about him. This God's worthy of worship. And he's also unquestionably certain. Here's the final one. Verse 15. God's grip is unquestionably certain. Verse 15. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away or passed by or he will call it into account. The point is that God's grip of time brings us sturdiness. You like certainty? I do. Especially in a world that's unpredictably broken. And while the world around you heaves and ebbs and flows, while your money may fly away, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm the Lord, I change not. Neither do His plans nor His works. Neither do what is right and what is wrong. Neither does what is evil and what is good. None of those things change. And for the Christian, a time for everything brings comfort because it reminds you that God has a plan. For the sinner, it looks like purposeless routine. Sinners look only at what they can see and it brings, it just seems boring and purposelessness. Maybe even unjust. But we look beyond the curse to God. God looks beyond the curse to what how he'll make it beautiful. And what he's doing is dynamic. It's not static. It has divine purpose. It's all contributing to the creator's overall masterpiece, which is beautiful. And whatever God does lasts forever, including your salvation. John 10. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are are one. No matter what the curse brings, you can never be lost once the Lord's found you. So in this fallen world, lay hold of the greatest tool that God's given you to live, His his good grip. Trust the one who who always does, does right. And after you're tethered to that, reminded to that, then I'll put some tools in your hands. We're going to see Ecclesiastes' view on wicked politics next week. And as I was trying to discern which of these to preach first, do I preach about the wicked politics first and then about God's good grip? I evaluated my own heart and said, I need to be reminded of God's grip before I see evil politics. I see that all around me first. So think right 
and then we'll, we'll do right and have the tools. Maybe you're here this morning and you're trusting in things and people and they've totally let you down. It has nothing to do with what's going on on, on the news. So I'm going to say to you, come to the one who stands forever. Come to the one who declares the end from the beginning and controls every atom in between. He'll never fail you. And if he tells you that if you'll repent and believe, if you'll call on his name, he'll save you, he will. This same God will do that. Why don't you bow your heads? Three messages that go together. rope tied around our waist to the Lord's boat as we float in choppy waters. Solomon will teach us how to swim next week. But maybe you're here and as Clay even mentioned just the, the fear or the, the anger, not righteous indignation. You should be righteously indignant about things that you see Maybe it crossed the line. Maybe it led you away from trusting in the Lord. and Maybe it, it moved. Maybe you're on the opposite side. Maybe you're ambivalent. If God is going to make everything beautiful, you ought to care about those things too. Whatever it is, the Lord knows, and this was His word to you today, so just turn to Him. He'll move toward you. He's moving toward you, not away from you. Father, I thank you for your word and for your truth. Thank you for how it has been a balm to my own soul this week. And thank you for the truth that's coming. I pray that you would help us to respond rightly to what's before us. I pray if anyone's here that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, that they would bow the knee and say, You are God, I am not. Oh, I am full of sin, and I need somebody to wash me clean. And may they hear the words of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Use us. Use us in our world. For Jesus' sake, in his name we pray. Amen.